What comes to your mind when you think about heaven? Probably for a lot of us, immediately there's some kind of mental image that's evoked when we hear the word heaven. The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, you may remember if you read the book, Miss Watson was trying to convince Huck to go to the good place. And she described the good place as being a place where a body goes and sings all day long and all night long with harps forever and ever. But Huck found this description of heaven to be quite boring. And he said he didn't want to go there. He would prefer to go to hell where his friends were going to be, including Tom Sawyer. There's a country song that I remember hearing when I was growing up. If heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, then I don't want to go. Just send me to New York City. It's the same as hell to me. There are lots of other popular songs that talk about heaven, knocking on heaven's door. There at Clapton's song, Tears of Heaven. In literature and in song, in popular imagination, heaven has sort of taken on a meaning of its own. We can think about heaven in terms of something that comes later, some place that we go to after death, a place of joy, a place of bliss. But also we use the word heaven to describe what we might consider otherworldly experiences of delight and joy. So this pie is heavenly. There's even a brand of ham called heavenly ham. For many of us, heaven is about some hope that we have after death for ourselves and for our loved ones. And or it's a way of talking about blissful experiences we might have now. But how should we think about heaven? And what difference does it actually make? <laughs> what we think about heaven. Revelation, what we're studying this season of Epiphany, is a heavenly vision. And in chapters 4 and 5, what we just read, we get a grand tour of heaven. If you've ever visited the Biltmore Estate in North Carolina, you know just how massive and imposing and grand this house is. And in just an hour's tour, you can only scratch the surface because every nook and cranny, every room, every piece of furniture has some kind of meaning. It's symbolic for something. There's some sort of story that goes with it. And you can only cover so much on one visit. What I want us to do in the next few moments with John as our tour guide is to take a tour of heaven and draw out some implications. And we're going to want to keep coming back, though, to this vision, because there's always more to see, there's always more to explore. But to kind of keep our focus on this tour, I want us to just consider three images that become prominent as we move through Revelation 4 and 5. There's a door, there's a throne, and then there's the Lamb. So Revelation 4.1, John says, After this, I looked up, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. Revelation, as we've already seen, and we'll continue to see this, is highly visual. It invites us to see, it invites us to draw pictures with our mind's eye. And John here, he is in a vision. This is an experience that he is recounting where he sees a door that is opening up to a place that he describes, experiences as heaven. Now, before we press into this vision a bit, I think we need to zoom out a few frames and just consider what the Bible is talking about when it's talking about heaven. If we go all the way to the first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then at the very end of Scripture, in Revelation chapter 22, John, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. 
At the beginning and end of Scripture, we have a depiction of heaven. The beginning of the Christian story, the end of the Christian story, we see heaven and earth, not as some separate, far-off realities, but heaven and earth united and joined, interlocking realities. Heaven in the Bible, it refers to God's space. Earth is the place that we know that we're limited by time and matter. But the reality of heaven is often revealed, such as it is here to John. Heaven is not about geography. The famous Russian cosmonaut said, I flew into heaven, looked around, and I didn't find God there. Well, he didn't need to leave earth to actually experience or know something about heaven. How do we get to heaven? Heaven doesn't require a rocket ship to get you there. It doesn't even require death to transport you there. Heaven, as John experiences here, is accessed through a door. There's an often used illustration of this, of the Chronicles of Narnia. You all know the story of Narnia. They enter into a whole other world, a world that seems to be just right there, but it's accessed through a door. It comes through the door of the wardrobe. Going through this door, going through this door with John to enter into this heavenly place, it's like getting a backstage pass to a concert. You get to go into the VIP section. You get to see the inner workings of the concert. You get to see what's happening from a completely different perspective. And this is one of the themes that recurs through Revelation that I think we see here. And I think it's one of the things that we need to understand about what Revelation is doing for us. Revelation, again and again, is giving us a heavenly vision of earthly realities. Revelation is inviting us to experience and to see our lives, the world around us, through this heavenly picture. Heaven reorients us to earth. And Jesus is the one who promises to open a door to us so that we, like John, can experience this reality. Right before chapter 4, at the end of chapter 3, a couple weeks ago we looked at this, when Jesus is addressing the church at Laodicea, this church had become self-sufficient, this church had become stagnant, as we saw. They had become rich and decadent and no longer really needed this spiritual dimension. The word for this was that they had grown lukewarm. They had shut the door to Jesus. And remember, what does Jesus say? Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come to him and eat with him and he with me. Christianity, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is an invitation to come through the door that Jesus opens for us, and to see this heavenly reality. And this, by the way, is what Christian worship is all about. John is told, come up here. The word really is ascend up here. Get up here, John, and I will show you all the things that must take place. And we're also told when this happens. It happens on the Lord's Day. And we're also told how this happens. It happens in the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. The church, for a long, long time, has read Revelation as a sort of liturgical document. In particular, here in Revelation 4 and 5, there's a picture, there's a window into what happens when the church gathers together in worship on the Lord's Day, in the Spirit. It's like an ascent into this heavenly dimension where we see things differently. We join in to what is already happening in this heavenly space. The Lord's Day is the day of resurrection. We come together at the invitation of Jesus We come through the door, we ascend into heaven in the power of the Spirit. And it's from this heavenly perch that together, as we worship like John, we 
see a revelation, a revelation that comes when the word of God is opened up. We start to see things differently. We start to see our problems differently. We start to see the problems of the world differently. Heaven orients us to earth. Now we've entered in through this door to this vast, awesome space. What else do we see? Well, one of the things that John immediately sees What's most prominent, it's easy to get lost, by the way, when you're reading in Revelation because you're just bombarded by all of these visions, right? I even tried to draw, I'm a terrible artist, but I even tried to draw this out this week and it was, it was a complete mess. But one thing that's prominent here is the throne. In chapter four alone, the throne is mentioned 14 times. John, as he comes to this door, the throne becomes, even though he can't quite see clearly who's on the throne, it's the throne that takes center stage. Verse 2, at once I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. He goes on to say, and around the throne there were 24 thrones. From the throne came flashes of lightning, peals of thunder. Before the throne there were seven torches. Before the throne there was a sea. Around the throne, four living creatures, throne, throne, throne. This is what we're supposed to see is somehow central in this heavenly space. Heaven is the throne room for the Lord. All of these images of the sea and jasper, these images of the gems, there's all sorts of Old Testament antecedents that are in the background that in the Old Testament context refer to the presence of Yahweh. This is what's going on here. John's entering into this space, and although it seems a bit vague, it's glorious, it's overwhelming, what emerges is the throne. There's one seated on the throne. This is the throne room of the Lord. And there's a couple of things I think that are important to understand about this throne room. It's a throne room in the sense that it's a temple. What's happening in this place? Worship. In all sorts of different ways. There's the 24 elders. There's the four living creatures. And we could drill down into all of these symbols and spend a lot of time there. But the main thing that we're to see is that all of creation, all of heaven and earth, are coming together in this throne room, in this temple, in praise to the one who is seated on the throne, the Lord. And it's a glorious, magnificent, resplendent thing that is happening. But also, the throne room is not just a temple of praise. The throne room here, it's a heavenly court. We tend to separate out in our minds things religious and things political. But people wouldn't have thought that way in the time of the Bible, whether you're in the Jewish context or in the Greco-Roman context, these things seem to hold together uh, in, in ways that aren't easily extracted. So, for example, in the Roman Empire, the Roman em- emperor exercised his power in highly religious ways. There was even a cult of Caesar that emerged as a way to exercise his power. There was a state religion that involved worship of the emperor who dispensed justice from his throne, as it were. And political loyalty was expressed through religious worship. Heaven here is the ultimate court. It's the ultimate throne. And the sovereign is on the throne. And this is a direct challenge in this context of Rome. And it's a direct challenge to any political pretenders who would usurp the authority that belongs to Yahweh alone. Heaven is a counter-political order that we ascend to, especially when we worship, and we remember this is the one who is seated on the throne. This is the sovereign who, despite present circumstances and the way we might experience the world, is completely in control. Bottom line, John gets a peek 
at who's really in charge of his life, of the Roman world, indeed, of all of history. Heavenly worship of the enthroned one is a political act. The political act in Revelation is worship God. This has immense implications for how we understand our engagement with the world around us. This throne room shows John and us where true and ultimate authority and power are. And this is why, by the way, Christian worship is so important to reorient us in our loyalties to the right place, to the right throne. Because there are so many thrones that are competing for our loyalty. There are so many thrones competing for us to lay down our crowns before them and worship them. There's all the obvious ones. There's the throne of vocation, our jobs. There's even the good things like family. And then there's a throne of current partisan politics that is constantly calling for us to worship and invest all of our power, all of our emotion, all of our energy at this throne. And of course, we've seen in other places, even recently, how the Bible calls us to be active and engaged with the world around us. Yes, to be good citizens, but not at the expense of worshiping the Lord alone who is seated on the throne, the sovereign. This would have had enormous implications for John, who has taken heat from the political powers that be in, that, in his day, in his situation. And to see this, you have to imagine, was a wonderfully encouraging, not just reminder, but reality for John. I may be exiled on Patmos. I may be marginalized by the state. But the irony is, I belong to a political order. I worship the one who is in charge of it all. And it's Christian worship that brings this reality to us again and again, week after week. It calls us to enter into the throne court of the heavenly king and to worship. And heavenly worship is not a retreat from the world. It's actually a backstage pass so that we can see what's really going on, so that when we go out into the world, we can have a heavenly perspective on earthly realities. So that's the throne. Then there's the lamb. We're only scratching the surface here. This is sort of a jet tour. We're sort of racing through the Biltmore right now. But the lamb emerges in chapter 5. We've passed through the door. We've encountered the throne. But on this tour of heaven, John is caught up in a drama. He's caught up in this dramatic event that happens, and there's a tension that starts to build. John, in 5.1, he sees a scroll or a, a book. It's sealed with seven seals, and we're not quite told what that book is. We're going to see in the coming weeks what this book is. It's at the right hand of the enthroned one. And an angel wonders out loud, who is worthy to open and break the seals of this book? There's something that the angels, the company of heaven, and John understands. It's very important that this book be opened so that order can be brought to the world. This is an important book, but no one was found worthy to open the book. Now, in the Bible, the right hand of Yahweh, the right hand of God, it refers to both judgment and salvation, the salvation that God brings, but also his righteous judgments that he brings into the world. It's the place where the new David, the Messiah, was expected to come and take his place and rule. But here, this throne of David is unoccupied. No one is found who can come and occupy this important, prestigious place and open up and break the seals so that this book can be opened. Where is the worthy candidate for this throne? The tension builds, and John is crushed. He starts to weep because no one is coming to the throne. 
But I think we're to understand John is not just weeping for himself here. Uh, John, up to this moment, being reassured by the throne room, has some idea that the opening of this book means justice and salvation for the world. This is what comes from God's right hand. How will the world be finally put right? How will justice and salvation finally be brought to the world? How will the rule of heaven come to earth? But heaven responds to the laments, to the tears of earth, to the tears of saints. Tears in heaven are met with what the angel says to John, weep no more. Heaven is a place of wiping of tears. Heaven is a place where mourning turns into joy, where lament turns into praise. Why? Because of what happens in verse 5. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the book and its seven seals. Tears will be wiped away because the king has won his victory and will open up this book of judgment that will bring justice and salvation to the world. John hears about a lion, but he sees someone who he hasn't seen there before. He says, I saw a lamb standing as though he had been slain, and he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, the lamb who takes his place at the Father's right hand to reign and to rule. This, by the way, I think is what John is is witnessing in some kind of retrospective way is the ascension when the Lord Jesus comes and takes his place at the Father's right hand. This was a lamb who was slaughtered. He didn't grasp for power or earthly authority the way that the world does. But yet the song of praise tells us it's precisely this is what makes him to be worthy. Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and every language and every people and nation. Jesus, who we saw as the priest, He lays down his life as a sacrifice and then through doing so becomes the heavenly king, the Lamb of God, who reigns, who rules at the Father's right hand. He alone is worthy to to receive the same worship and honor that the one seated on the throne receives the Father, the Father and the Son receiving the praise of heaven. Christian worship culminates with a celebration of praise at the Eucharist of this Lamb of God who was slain for us and who rules at the right hand of the Father. Our Eucharistic liturgy tells this story. It retells this drama for us every week. We come to worship with John. We bring our lament. We bring our tears. We bring our sorrows from the world. Yes, absolutely. We bring our sorrows. We bring ourselves in our world that is not yet right. But we lift up our hearts in joy. And we give thanks to the Lord because of the Lamb who was slain for us. And the Lamb, through His work, all things will be put right. I want to draw out a couple of implications for us to consider to close. Christian worship is so important. It's so central to the life of the church. Because it's in worship when we come together, we ascend to heaven. We enter into this door that's been opened to us through the Lamb who is seated with the Father. Worship pulls us out of ourselves. Worship isn't just one more context for you to come and be introspective and navel gaze. We have plenty of context to do that, right? Worship is where we can come together. It's corporate worship where we come together and we look out, we look up to Jesus, to the Lamb. 
so that we can re-engage the world with a new perspective. In Revelation 4 and 5, there's this wonderful movement that's happening. Worship is flowing out from the throne in all of these concentric circles. It's anticipatory. This is where the story is going. This is the purpose of all of creation, to join in this circle of praise. And so every time we come together and join in that circle of praise, we are living out our ultimate purpose. Revelation 4 and 5 features a couple of things that I just want to highlight. Singing and prayer. Singing and prayer. These are two features of worship together that help us join into this praise with all the company of heaven. Every revolution has its songs, right? The American Revolution had its songs. Les Mis, you, I'm not going to sing it. Do you hear the people sing, right? Maybe Liz can sing that for us later after the service. We have four or five hymns here in these two chapters that are revolution songs. These are songs about who's really in charge. These are not just sweet little nothings to kind of aid and comfort, you know, those who need hope. These are telling the story of who's in charge and who is worthy of worship. This is revolutionary. And when we join into these songs, when we believe it, it reorients us to the world that we live in. In a way that's clear-eyed, yes, but in a way that's immensely hopeful. We need to learn to sing the songs of Scripture. We need to recover the psalms of Scripture. We need to sing them. We need to chant them. We need to internalize them. We need to sing songs that are rooted in Scripture and to continue to do this. This is so important because this is one of the ways that we join in to this heavenly praise. But also, prayers. We've seen how John's prayer, his lament, is taken and transformed in heaven this is what happens, too, when we come to worship. We bring our prayers before the throne, before the Lamb. 5.8. The four living creatures fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. It's the prayers of the church that cross this threshold and come before the Lamb. And when we gather together as the saints of God, our prayers ascend like incense before the Lamb. They are heard. Vigorous singing. Faithful prayers as a community, these are heavenly practices of worship. Practices that give us a view of earth from heaven. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.